Hello again. I had some announcements and now I completely forgot what they were. No, I really didn't. I wanted to share some things with you tonight and introduce our guest to you. But uh, this is uh, being watched uh, or will be watched on different homes across America, potentially 10 million homes on the cable network that it's on. At different times, we've had people from other states call us and say, hey, I saw that line-on-line thing on television. And people are watching it over the Internet. Um, Tonight, you're going to see, and we try to incorporate whenever we can in the study, you're going to see some scenes from Israel that are the exact scenes of the scriptures that we will be reading. Now, I know that you can't all take a tour to Israel. Some of you have gone to Israel with us. Um, If we were to probably offer one anyway right about now, you'd all say no because of the violence that's going on over there. But nonetheless, this is probably the next best thing, just to see it in the uh, screens behind us, to be able to look at the places you're reading about. It becomes a little more interactive. Well, tonight, we have a couple of guests that I wanted to introduce to you. One is a pastor from Roswell, New Mexico, where all the aliens are, Jim Suttle, and um, his brother-in-law... Greg Andrews, who is a missionary with his family in the Arabian Gulf. Would you please welcome them? Now, before uh, we get into some questions, uh, we get some mail from the Internet, and we have people uh, writing even during the study, and they'll ask questions sometimes, and we'll answer them. And uh, we have um, a response from a gal named Elizabeth, who said, thank you for answering my question. Wow, it was very exciting. Also, the answer really ministered to me. God bless you. Love in him, Elizabeth. So we get responses, not only questions, but thank yous and uh, affirmations after the fact. Um, Jim, you're down in Roswell. The first thing we all want to know are, are there really aliens? Well, yes, they are. I am one. You are one. (laughs) Okay, there you go. There you go. Well, the Bible says we're all foreigners and aliens if you read the King James, doesn't it? That's, that's correct. We don't belong here. Okay, well, that's right. We're, we're going somewhere else. We're on our way to heaven. Um, and Greg, how long have you been uh, in the Arabian Gulf? We've been living in the Arabian Gulf for five years now. Uh, fundamentally, there is ambassadors of the king. All right. Amen. Um, Jim, when you, you know, I think about going from Southern California to Albuquerque, for me it was a, a shock in terms of population. I mean, I was used to million, 35 million people in one state coming down to 500, 750,000 town. It was like going to a village for me. But going from Albuquerque to Roswell is like, is that a culture shock? It was definitely a culture shock. I grew up here in Albuquerque and was born and raised here. And to go down there to a town that is a little less than 50,000 was extremely tough, especially to go pioneer work. I mean, it was in a sense of coming out under Calvary, Albuquerque, under your leadership and vision, and all of a sudden all on your own. You know, just not knowing a single soul, not knowing anybody, and just kind of stepping out to say, okay, God, what are you going to do? Now, we're talking a little bit about isolation tonight, and David, for circumstances in his life, was for all intents and purposes lonely because of the things Saul did as well as some of the things he did. And there's different levels we can experience isolation in. Did you have that sense, you and your family, when you left here, was there a sense of, did I do the right thing, or a a sense of where you were isolated, you felt kind of distant from people? 
without a doubt. I mean, I think it cycled, you know, over back and forth, you know, once a week, once a, once a quarter. It seemed to slowly uh, dissipate. I mean, the first thing you do when you get down, you're, why am I here? You know, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing this? And uh, every now and then we'd make a quick excursion back up to Albuquerque and think about staying, and then, no, we'd go back. And slowly over time began to really know that that's where God had us. But there, there is that sense of just being totally alone. I mean, you're in a place where you don't know, and, and you're not even sure what God's going to do yet. Did you ever think we did the wrong thing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you over that hump? Well, let's see. I'm still working on it. No, um, there isn't that sense of just saying, you know, that there's a, a place of knowing when you're in God's will. And I don't know how to better define that, but there's a piece of just saying, I'm right where God wants me to be, regardless of any circumstances, regardless mm-hmm. of whether things are going good or bad. There's just a sense, I know that this is what God's told me to do, and I've got to keep doing it. Is very oftentimes the easiest way isn't the Lord's way. The Lord wants you to plow through and learn the lessons, doesn't yeah. he? Without a doubt. Now, Greg, you're in the um, Arabian Gulf. Now, that talk about a, a, a culture shock, you know, from America, especially with all that's going on where you have a different culture, you have a different language, you have a completely different religion that dominates that culture. What does that feel like for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I really believe in blooming where you're planted, and God used the Navy to actually replant me in the Arabian Gulf. I was there at the time of the Gulf War, and so it was, uh, I was just trying to be right where I was at, and uh, God all of a sudden changed my circumstances and gave me a heart for the people. Uh, Put the microphone just a little yep. closer. There you, you go. You got it. Okay, so did, did you ever feel when you were there dejected by the people? It's not an easy place, is it, to share oh, the gospel? Absolutely. The... Uh, uh, especially in the in the current situation with the the Palestinian Israeli crisis, uh, the Arabs that we live among uh, definitely uh, Americans. Um, whenever they see Palestinians killed by uh, U.S. made military hardware, they get they get a little bit upset yeah. at us, and and that's it makes it difficult for them to receive our our message of of God's love. Uh, but you know. I think about, um, you know, having a future-oriented hope. I mean, God, is, God has brought us here, and I think that we just have this incredible sense that he is the one that is doing the work and that we are just getting the incredible privilege of seeing him move on our behalf. Now, there's not many people that would willingly leave America and go overseas to a culture like the one you're in um, unless they were really convinced God wanted them there. Was there a love that God put in your heart for those people, you and your family? Absolutely. And that's, it happened, you know, 12 years ago when I was there with the Gulf War. And I worked as an exchange uh, with the Saudis and the Bahrainis, and I, I just began to really love and care for these guys. I saw guys that fit my stereotype of who Muslims were, and I saw guys who blew away my stereotype of who Muslims were. And and when I began to realize that at that time in the early 90s that there was only one missionary for every one million Muslims, uh, and I had a care and concern for these people, I couldn't walk away from that. Wow. I think it's the Lord's heart when you have um, kind of a, an international expression of anti-American sentiment by that part of the world to have somebody who is an American who says, that might be the case, but I love you for Christ's yeah. sake. That goes a long way. That's commendable. And I think in that, you know, I mean, as Jim said, you know, we are fundamentally first and foremost citizens of heaven. And so one of the things that we've had to do, and, and part of the way that we've, we've dealt with this is, is that, uh, you know, we've learned to be a little bit Teflon with our own American identity. And we've learned to take on more and more identity as, as 
citizens of heaven. And, you know, we're not there to be ambassadors of the United States. We're there to be ambassadors of the king. That's right. Amen. Um, yeah. Is there a story, a spiritual victory that sort of sticks out to you uh, that's uh, significant that you'd want to share with us? You know, I, I think that uh, the personal victories, you know, are the things that actually sustain you. And, and I've had a real struggle with leadership, uh, as in the people that are leading me uh, over the past couple of years. And and First Peter 5, 5 through 11, you know, talks about how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so part of my own ability to sustain and continue working in this uh, is learning to submit and to uh, walk in humility with the people that I work with. They say that actually the number one reason that missionaries leave the field is because they can't get along with the other coworkers that they're there. Oh, interesting. Uh, Jim, I want you to just speak to people, somebody who's listening, from your heart. If you're going to give some advice, they have done something, made a decision, they feel like they're following the will of God, but in that, they're feeling very lonely, very isolated. Speak to them. I think at those moments, you know, you come across all the verses you've always known, the, the Romans 8.28s, the promises that are there, and, and you believe them in your head, and yet now you're being called to live them out in your heart, and it's extremely tough. I mean, you know they're true, and yet all of a sudden you're being put to the place of thinking, gosh, now I have to live this out. And discouragement takes over depression. There's so many voices. The thing that sticks out most to me is Paul's words to Timothy, just remain, just stay there. Mm -hmm. Stay where you're at, you know, and, and there's such a tendency to want to turn and run. There's such a tendency to want to quit, and it's the wrong voices. You know, we, we're not hearing that. We're hearing those things. It's just remain. Just stay to what you're yeah. called to do and, and, and stay to the task. Abide. 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 Stick with it. Stick in the vine. Okay, listen, we have a couple of questions from our audience tonight, and since you guys are up here to answer them, um, we're going to go for it. Where's Sebastian? I'm right here, Skip. Where are you? Hey, uh, good evening. Right here to uh, the window. Oh, there you are. The, the wandering Frenchman is over yes, there. Yes, I just came from my country, and I was walking through, and I thought, hey, here's a church. I'll ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough foolishness. So let's get to business. We have By a, the way, we have a nickname for Sebastian. What oh, is no, it, Sebastian? I forgot. I'm sorry. Pepe Le Pew. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Skip would not forget, of course. Thank you, Skip. I appreciate that. May we ask a questions now? Um, <laughs> sorry. Well, we have Patricia here who has a question. Uh, her and her friend were debating uh, intensely before, and uh, here we are. Okay, I'm serving God more than ever before in um, different ministries, and um, I'm being attacked by the enemy more than before. And in the midst of these circumstances, I'm wondering how can I continue to serve the Lord joyfully? Okay, good. That's a good question. That's a great question. Serving the Lord, being attacked by the enemy more than ever before. So you got the enemy attacking you, trying to steal your joy. How do you maintain a joyful composure in those kind of circumstances? How do you continue to serve the Lord joyfully? No, I mean, the answer is still really much the same. I mean, the, the danger of those things is we can now turn our, our eyes, our perspective onto the, the trials, the troubles, or even the future, and yet the Bible tells us in God's presence is fullness of joy. Yeah. If we abide in him, I mean, if we just live moment by moment, not allowing the, the fears of the future or where things are going to be, the things that are moving us, instead just saying, no, I'm just, I'm abiding. You know, and in his presence is where we find everything we need, and that's where the joy comes from. Yeah, let me just add a, a thought to that. 
When David was anointed as king, that's when the attacks began. And so you, you might look at it, one of the evidences that you are serving the Lord in the right place is that you're getting attacks from the right people. And that is from the world. Now, if you're getting attacks from God's people, and there's a whole host of them who are biblically sound coming against you, that's a whole other issue. But when you are a target of the enemy, you see, Satan is going to leave you alone if you're doing what he wants you to do. But if you're doing what God wants you to do, you're a target. And part of that is the evidence of, this is something God wants me to do. So you could kind of chalk that up to, great, I'm in the, I'm in the right place because the attacks are coming from the right from the right corners, the right quarters. Okay, we have another question. Yes. Pepe Le Pew. This time, thank you, Skip. Yes. Um, we are walking, we are walking, we are walking. Okay, Eugene. Eugene here has a question. Hey, Eugene. S something that he lived personally. Yes, Skip. Uh, I suffered uh, flu-like symptoms for about a month, and just recently, last Wednesday, found out there were allergies. And during that month of uh, suffering that, I was going through a time where in the morning it was hard to Bible study, it was hard to pray, it was hard to come to church, it was hard to fellowship. How do you stay focused on the Lord during like, a month of struggle? And, you know, some people I know suffer a lot longer than that. Okay. The question is, during a time of suffering, how do you stay focused on the Lord? Now, this is something you guys just talked about going through. What's it, what's it like? You're, you're, you're suffering. How do you stay focused on the Lord? You're distracted by the suffering. I, you know, I, I think about, uh, uh, I mean, all of that stuff cuts away at who you are. And, and certainly David is a tremendous example of that. I, I mean, Psalm 42, uh, verse 10, I think, says, you know, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, and, and yet I will praise him. You know, and so th there's that sense that, you know, even in that pit, um, there's a forward-looking hope towards Jesus. And, and, you know, though I'm in, this, in the midst of this, you know, though I can't even get out of bed and read my Bible, you know, I, I'm still orienting my hope towards Jesus. I think that's a good point. Where, where else are you going to go, I guess I would say? You know, when the di disciples, some of them didn't follow Jesus because of the controversial things he said. Some people left him, and Jesus turned to his 12 and said, Are you also going to go? And they said, Where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So if you think of the alternative of not staying focused on the Lord, I mean, suffering takes a terrible toll. It's a, quite a distraction. It's hard to think about anything else when you're so consumed with your own circumstances. But the alternatives is you're going to focus on that and be overwhelmed by it, or you're going to ask the Lord to lead you to the rock that is higher than you are. And I tell you, that's the secret of strength. That goes back to that abiding thing again, that remaining and trusting. It's your anchor. It's your only hope. Well, we're out of time. We're going to do another song of worship before we get into our study tonight. Marsh, Amy, the band. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Good. Go for it. Thank you, guys. You know, it's... Solitary confinement. It's the most painful kind of imprisonment because isolation deprives the individual of relationships and interactions that we all require. Not all isolation is as severe as solitary confinement, but even in a life devoted to God, our lives can be subject to the effects of loneliness, which can lead to depression. As we survey the lives of great men and women of faith, 
it's not unusual to find that many suffered from periods of spiritual depression. Devotion to God does not provide automatic immunity from feelings of isolation. As we observe the life of David tonight, we will consider three specific causes and three practical cures for spiritual depression. Tonight, we study the chapter of David's life where he lived as a fugitive and his faith in God was stretched and challenged. We begin in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Um, as we begin tonight, there is a question from the internet that I want to just get to as we open up from somebody named AJ. And uh, I don't know if AJ is a male or female, so I'll address this person generically if they're listening by the internet. But, um, you know, we remember that David, when Saul threw spears at him, he did the first thing we must always remember, and that is duck. Don't stay there. Neither did he retaliate. But rather, he let the Lord take care of it. That is, he gave place for wrath, but not his own gods. And that was his M.O. throughout his whole life and relationship with Saul. He didn't take personal revenge. Well, A.J. asks here, it says in the Bible, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. What does that mean? That's a good question. When the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, what does that imply? Well, that scripture, A.J., first comes to us in Deuteronomy. That's what God says. It's one of God's principles that we give room for God to act. In other words, it's God's prerogative, not man's prerogative, for vengeance, based upon God's perfect character. And then Paul the Apostle reiterates that in Romans. Um, and then also in Hebrews chapter 10, Romans 12, Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews takes that principle. It is God's prerogative. In the Old Testament, there was a law called the Lex Talionis that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what that was for was not on a personal level, but on a national level, to execute a form of God-provided vengeance to keep order in the land. I don't personally knock out somebody's tooth. I don't personally gouge out somebody's eye if they've committed a crime. I can't personally execute a punishment that is fitting the crime. That is done on a national level. Also, it was given to limit vengeance because it is man's nature. If you take out one of my teeth, I'm going to take out the whole uppers on you. You take out one eye, I'm going after both of yours. I'm going to go beyond what is fair. And so to limit vengeance and to bring a sense of, of parity and fairness into it on a national level, the Lex Talionis was given eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, so that God, though he reserves the right and the prerogative to execute vengeance, he allowed it to a certain degree in the national courts. But then Jesus in the New Testament said, you heard that it was said by those of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, don't resist an evil person. That if somebody smacks you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek to them and you extend forgiveness. That's the personal level. That's where you say, okay, I'm not going to be the one to get back. I'm going to leave it up to the Lord. And uh, Jesus, of course, did that. When he was on the cross after being beaten and spat upon and rebuked and rejected, he was hanging on the cross. He didn't say, I'm going to come back, you guys, in three days. You better look out. You'll get yours. 
But he said, Father, forgive them. Those were his words. Father, forgive them. And so there's a great lesson for us. Let the Lord take care of it. Vengeance is mine. Well, that's the question from the Internet. That sort of interfaces with David's whole career in the next several years, beginning in chapter 21, all the way to chapter 31, where he is a fugitive. There was once a man who went to visit a doctor. Now, the year was 1835. The setting was Italy. It was in Florence, Italy. The man goes to see the doctor. He says, I'm exhausted. I have feelings of anxiety, feelings of depression. I'm exhausted because I have been unable to sleep at night. So the guy gave him, the doctor gave him a checkup, found him to be physically sound and fit, couldn't figure out what's wrong with him, and just thought, you know, this guy just needs a good time. He needs to chill out. So the doctor said, there's a circus in town. Have you heard of the great Grimaldi, the world's greatest clown? People are rolling in the aisles every night. He will cure your sad heart and give you joy. You must see Grimaldi. The man said, he won't help. I am Grimaldi. <laughs> so there's the life of the party. Himself is singing the blues. Chapter 21 begins a period of great isolation, great loneliness for David. He is, as we said, a fugitive. He is removed from the royal court. He will traverse the landscape of Judah, the deserts, the forests. He'll go across the Dead Sea to Moab. He's just going to be like a Bedouin searching for a place to stay camping at one place for a while until Saul finds out his hiding place and goes after him to kill him. He is separated from the royal court in Gibeah. He is separated from his wife. He is separated from his family. He's separated from his good friend Jonathan. Most of the time will be spent fleeing from King Saul, who sees David as public enemy number one. We've all had seasons... In fact, you may be in one tonight where you feel isolated, lonely, even to a point of what you would say is depression. Your soul is dried up. The blue skies are gray. Things aren't what they used to be. Now, for David, it was because of jealousy and anger by one man, King Saul, that forced him into a place of isolation in part. And David, of course, will add to it, as you'll see tonight, by doing some things and making some pretty dumb choices that only accentuate the sense of loneliness and alienation. For other people, it's not in, in uh, jealousy or anger. It comes in a marriage and a relationship. People aren't getting along. Husbands and wives aren't seeing eye to eye. And so there they are, living under the same roof, supposed to enjoy a bliss and intimacy of marriage, but they're so lonely and isolated under the same roof. For others, it's problems at work or a disease that they have gotten, and they feel, I'm the only one experiencing this. And they can't seem to normalize it by finding other people that are going through it, and they feel very, very alone. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to call this spiritual depression. Before he existed, which was, you know, some 40, 50, 60 years ago, 
The ancients used to call it a problem with the soul. They referred to it as the dark night of the soul, a time when zest is gone. You don't find the clear spiritual answers that you once did. You know, things in one period of your life were just so easy, man. You knew all the answers. You had such great confidence, but not anymore. One author describes this condition as a miserable, wretched experience that leaves you exhausted, uninvolved, in the deep, in hopeless despair. There seems to be absolutely nowhere to turn and not one single thing that you can do to escape these horrible feelings. You feel doomed, trapped, at the end of your rope. It's awful. Now, some can resonate with that. You love the Lord. You know the Lord. We've heard a question from our audience tonight. There's a period of suffering. How do you hold on to the Lord during those times? Well, that's where David comes in, you see, because David, and I am so glad God used David to write the Psalms. I'm glad that God didn't find some guy who never experienced a depth of depression or loneliness or alienation, just Mr. Spiritual all the time. I wouldn't really want to read his Psalms. I want to read the Psalms of a guy who's been down. And you know, some people are absolutely astonished when they start actually reading the Bible and finding out what's in there. Why so downcast, O oh my soul, David said. Why are you disquieted within me? He talks to himself, hope in God. Or another psalm, Lord, why are you so far from helping me? How long, O oh Lord, how long will I cry out and you don't answer me? Those are the pleadings of a man who's down in the depth and leaves us, deposits for us the psalms that we can read and go, oh, now there's a prayer I can really relate with. You see, therein lies the beauty of being a fugitive. Because during these years of wandering, during these years of isolation of being a fugitive, some of the best psalms David ever wrote were penned. In fact, chapters 21 through 31, David as a fugitive, have as their background what fills these 10 psalms, Psalm 18, Psalm 34, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, Psalm 56, Psalm 57, 63, 124, 138, and 142. You'll have a test on that at the end of the night. Point is, all of those psalms find their background during this time. And you know that to be true. Some of the best songs the church has ever sung were written by people not on the beach in Maui, but in the depth of depression. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, The music of the sanctuary is in no small degree indebted to the trials of the saints. Affliction is the tuner of the harps of sanctified songsters. So, part of your curriculum in life will be depth. Some of your curriculum, some of the classes God will take you through will be periods of alienation and isolation. He's going to allow that because he didn't want you to be shallow. He wants your roots to go down. You know, you can't really get those deep roots by just reading the latest Christian book or the newest Christian CD. Go, oh, that was really cool. You want depth. You have to go through depths, times of suffering, 
valleys of the shadow of death. That's where you discover the Lord is with me. That's maturity. Well, we get to verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David. And he said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? I don't know. That's interesting to me. David comes alone at first. Now a contingent of men will come with him. You'll see in the next few verses. But he approaches him alone. He goes, what are you doing here? You're alone. What's the matter? Now, why would he do that? Well, the last time Israel saw David alone, he faced a giant and cut off his head. I don't know. I'd be afraid of the same guy who did that if he's going to come and see me with that little look in his eye. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. So he says goodbye to Jonathan in the last chapter. He moves south to Nob. Nob is Mount Scopus. You're going to see some scenes of the actual... There it is, Mount Scopus. That's where David fled to. Now, if you've been watching the news today, unfortunately, the latest attack happened right there at Nob, Mount Scopus. Today, somebody walked into the Hebrew University located on this hill right next to Jerusalem and blew themselves up, killing eight people and injuring like 30 or 40 other people. So that terrorism continues. David comes to this place. Ahimelech's afraid of him. David said he's on a journey from the king. And he says, I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, David is lying. The king didn't send him on business. He's lying. He's fleeing from the king. Now, you might say, well, this is justified lying. It's okay to lie under certain circumstances. Well, that's what David is thinking right now. This is called situation ethics. And situation ethics tells us it's okay to do wrong in certain situations, like if your life's in danger, and David was thinking, my life's in danger, I'm going to lie, so that you can bend a moral code if the outcome is favorable outcome. But this isn't okay for two reasons. Reason number one, and perhaps the greatest reason, God said it's not okay, that's why. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't lie. Number two, David's lie is going to cost the death of these priests, 85 of them, including their wives, their children, and their livestock, because of what's going to happen. Verse 3, Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. This is a ceremonial cleanness that he was requiring. David answered the priest and said, Truly, women have been kept from us for about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is, in effect, common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but there was the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. The showbread. Remember what that was? 
Remember in the tabernacle and later in the temple, there was this golden table of two stacks, six loaves of bread in each stack. It was the table of showbread, one loaf representing each tribe. It was called the bread of presence. It was in the presence of the Lord, as if the children of Israel were always before the Lord. God was always contemplating their affairs. The showbread could only be eaten by the priests. It was changed every Sabbath. Hot bread was put in its place. The old bread was taken. The priest would munch on it. It was part of their wages, you might say. So David comes. David's hungry. And now Ahimelech, the priest, has to make a choice. This is holy bread. Only priests are supposed to eat it. But he's going to feed it to David here because David said, in effect, it's common bread. The priest sees he has a moral obligation to David. And the moral obligation will supersede the ceremonial obligation. Now, this is not situation ethics. He's not bending a moral law. He's bending a ceremonial law. So he's saying, you know what, in effect, the showbread's already been changed. The new stuff's before the Lord. The old stuff we're going to eat. But you have a physical need. You could die without this food. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to bend the ceremonial code. And that is the moral thing to do, to feed you. So he does. Now, this is exactly what Jesus referred to in the gospel is this situation. Remember the day when the disciples are out in the grain fields? They grab some grain, they rub it between their hands, and they eat it. It's the Sabbath day. And it says the Pharisees were there to question him. Now, my, my question in reading that text has always been, what were the Pharisees doing in the grain fields on the Sabbath day to begin with? It's just an odd thing. Jesus is out in the countryside. He's with his disciples. They're in the grain fields. They're having a talk. Boom, a pair of Pharisees are there. Pop up. Oi. It's like they've been following them or something. It says, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, wait a minute. Back in Deuteronomy, the law says you can go through the grain fields and you can pick as much grain as you want. You just can't take a sickle to it. You can't take a container and bring it home. But you can eat as much as you want. Ah, but this is the Sabbath day. And according to the Talmud of the Jews, they had made 39 different categories of what is called work on the Sabbath day. And you can, you can live on the Sabbath, you can worship on the Sabbath, but you can't work on the Sabbath. And four of those categories, of those 39 categories, is that you couldn't reap, you couldn't winnow, you couldn't thresh, and you couldn't prepare a meal. Technically, the disciples had broken all four of them. Because technically, when they grabbed the piece of grain and broke it, that was reaping. And technically, when they rubbed the wheat in their hands like this and the chaff started coming off, technically that was winnowing because there's a separation. Technically, when they went and blew off the chaff, technically to them, that was threshing. And so, in effect, they were preparing a meal. They had broken the law in four counts. They're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And I love Jesus' answer. He goes, don't you guys ever read the Bible? That's what he said. Have you never read what David did when he and his men were hungry, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful except for the priest to eat? 
And then Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And then he pointed to himself and said, The Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. That's when they got really ticked off. It's like, you're saying you're God or something. Duh. Good, you get an A on that. And so God created man before he ever instituted a Sabbath law. Jesus and this priest saw the same thing. They have a moral obligation to feed these men. Just a note. Some of you come from very rigid backgrounds, very legalistic backgrounds. Some of you come from very legalistic churches. And because of that, it's hard for you to function in the parameters of grace. I mean, you want to rule for everything. You want to know exactly where to begin and where to end, and you're very comfortable. And laws are very, very comfortable. There is God's law. There are God's moral parameters. But there is the grace of God, which gives you a lot of latitude. And whenever you let the rules rule, rather than the ruler rule, the one who makes the rules rule, you have a real problem. One is based on relationship. One is based on ceremony. We can get very comfortable. I've kept the ceremonies. I've read 10 chapters a day. I've kept the Sabbath law. Rather than, I love God. I have a relationship with Him. I didn't read 10 chapters a day. I read four, but I got ministered to while I did. I didn't pray for two hours a day. I prayed for 16 minutes or whatever. Don't let the rules rule. Let the Lord rule. And it seems that that's what this priest does here. Now, I just got to tell you that this, this scripture that we just read and what Jesus said in the Gospels about this was a great comfort to my heart in my early walk. I'll tell you why. I lived with a perpetual guilt of something that I had done earlier in my youth. And I'm going to confess it to you right now. When I was going to Catholic school during Lent, St. Mary's School in California, it was during Lent. We had Mass every day at school. One day, I didn't bring my lunch. And I was starved, man, about 12.30. Been out on the playground, came back. I was hungry. There was nothing to eat. Nobody would share their lunch with me. There wasn't really a cafeteria. And so I was in the auditorium where the Mass is said. <laughs> oh, yeah, and back there behind the platform <laughs> was a bag of showbread of hosts. They were not consecrated hosts, but nonetheless, they were like hosts. And if you know anything about that, one falls to the ground, it's like, whoa, you know, it's a big deal. But I was so hungry that I grabbed in there, in, in the bag, took a whole handful out, and I, I, I munched them like potato chips. Okay, it was wrong. It was stealing. I shouldn't have done it. I felt awful. In fact, I felt so bad for like years. I couldn't shake it. And then I read this scripture and I thought, that's cool. <laughs> there it is right here. Moral obligation supersedes ceremonial obligation. I just felt much better. <laughs> so David asked for food. The second request that he has is for a sword. He wants to defend himself. First time David's done that. Remember last time when he fought Goliath, he didn't need a sword. He didn't need armor. He just needed a sling and the Lord. But now he wants a sword. The only sword that's there is the sword of Goliath. It's been kept there in Nob as a memorial for what David did back in chapter 17 with Goliath. 
And David looks at it and says, let me have it. There's none like it. And he takes it. And he travels now over to Gath. Over to Gath. Over to the capital of the Philistine country. There's five Philistine cities. Gath is the capital. Well, during this whole episode of being at Nob, there's a guy by the name of Doeg. Doeg the Edomite, who's a spy. He's a shepherd. He's been out in the fields, and he watched David and his men come to Nob and talk to the priest, and he goes back, and he snitches on him to King Saul so that Saul is going to understand David's been talking to him. Now, verse 10, David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So it seems David is afraid that Saul's got his spies everywhere in the country, so he's going to go to the least likely place, for salt to come after me, where the Philistines live. Now, I don't know, but this is like going from the frying pan into the fire. You know, if you're going to dodge somebody, don't go to the camp of your enemies. But he does that. This is sort of like Peter warming himself by the fires of the enemy when, after he betrayed Jesus. He go, and here's the thing. Where was Goliath from? Anybody remember? Gath. He's called Goliath of Gath. Well, don't you think it's odd, a bit humorous, strangely ironic, that David would walk into Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword <laughs> strapped to him? I mean, that's sort of like going into Iraq after the Gulf War with the Republican Guard uniform and gun. I mean, somebody's going to notice you. And they do notice him. Verse 11, the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Did you notice what they called David? They referred to David as the king of the land. I doubt they knew about Samuel coming and anointing him in Bethlehem. They knew that he worked for Saul. Saul has slain his thousands. They sung that top 40 song that was going around on the charts. But David has tens of thousands. But they referred to him, even perhaps prophetically, since he would one day be the king of the land, as the king. You know what I think? I think David should have just stuck with the sling, man. Instead of grabbing that sword, wasn't it the same David who stood before Goliath just a few chapters back and said to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a shield. I come to you in the name of the living God, whom you have defied, and I'm going to cut off your head, buckaroo. This is paraphrased. <laughs> You're looking, buckaroo, buckaroo, where is that? Concordance, B-A-B-U. It's not in there. So wh why, David, don't you just stick with the name of the Lord? You're a shepherd. You're naturally endowed. You're supernaturally protected. Why don't you go, instead of going for the enemy's stuff, because he gets recognized. And so verse 13, notice what he resorts to. David changed his behavior before them, pretending madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Lovely. And Achish said to his servants, Look, you see, this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Do I need madmen 
that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David's afraid. So David resorts, and he must have been a great actor, because he was believable. He just started drooling. In those days, drooling down your beard was intolerable. It was, it's like spitting in somebody's face. Oh, look at that's gross. He's nuts, man. He's insane. Get him out of here. And David did that by design so that he might be able to escape from Gath. This is my take on it. Circumstances are one thing. Circumstances you can't avoid, like Saul hating you, being jealous, being angry, throwing spears, putting out somebody, a hitman to kill you. You can't avoid those circumstances. That's not David's fault. But when you lie, like he did to Saul, saying that he was going to Bethlehem last chapter, when you lie to the priest at Nob, when you deceive or lie to the king of Gath, all that does is push you further and further into isolation. You're now hiding behind a lie. You're not living in the light. You're not living in the truth. And the, the net result is feelings of more alienation and loneliness and isolation. And it seems like he just throws caution to the wind here, just going into, into Gath with Goliath's sword. It was Shakespeare, I believe, who said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. And so David is going from leaving the court, leaving his family, leaving his friend, and now he is hiding behind the lies and the deception everywhere he goes. He's a scoundrel. Now, he's a man after God's own heart, which shows me that God's standards maybe are a little bit lower than we think. Maybe God's standard isn't perfection, but God's standard is, I know you're human. And especially since we have the son of David, the Savior, who has paid for our sins, God will accept us on that basis completely. David is a man after God's own heart, not because he was flawless, not because he never sinned, but when he did sin, you will find him come to a place of humility and repentance. You find that even when he commits the grossest sin of murder and adultery. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and committed this evil in thy sight. Purge me with hyssop, cleanse me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. There was a genuine repentance in David's heart. But he wasn't perfect. But I'll tell you, it's amazing, and you see it here, how people of faith can become such people of unbelief. A man who trusted God and was facing a giant is now needing swords and deception, drool, and everything else just to get along in life. Pretty bad when you resort to drooling all over the place. In the name of the Lord, I'm a drooler for Jesus. <laughs> now, before we jump into chapter 22, let me give you what I think are some, some causes of this feeling of isolation, loneliness, or spiritual depression. And again, I am not here as a doctor talking about clinical depression, but spiritual depression. Certain causes of alienation. Let me give you a few that I think pertain to David. Number one, unfulfilled expectation. Unfulfilled expectation. You know, the day that Samuel came to Jesse's house in Bethlehem was unexpected for David. He stood before this unknown prophet, 
unknown to him at least, except he had just heard of him. And this guy pours oil all over him and says, by the way, David, you're going to be the next king of Israel. I am? You are. Wow. He's just a shepherd kid. And at that moment, he begins now to process all that that means. He never pushes for it, but he processes that. And he believes, this is from the Lord. This is what God has called me to become. But it didn't happen so quickly. He goes to the court of Saul. After fighting Goliath, he has spears thrown at him once, twice, three times. He was out. He left. Now he's in a period of isolation, alienation. His wife isn't around. His family isn't around. His friend isn't around. Things aren't happening like perhaps he thought they should happen. Proverbs 13 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Have you ever expected something from the Lord and it didn't happen? And the result is you go, well, Lord, if that's the way you're going to treat me, I don't know if I want to trust you anymore. I don't know if you're trustworthy anymore. And you feel farther from him. You feel weaker and less confident in him. And that contributes to loneliness. There's a lot of things you can feel trapped in. You can feel trapped in your job. You can feel trapped because maybe you had an, a forced retirement. You had to leave early. Or maybe, maybe you just haven't read the Bible right. Maybe you expect God to never allow you to have any suffering and all you have to do is believe by faith and say, glory, glory, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, ten times, and you're going to have a miracle happen. So all you have to do is just skate through life with this high, intense level of faith, and you're just going to be fine. And then it doesn't happen. It never does. It never does. That's a false way of thinking. And if God doesn't pull through and do what you think that he should do, you get awfully angry at God, even depressed. I found this article I wanted to read to you. It's out of Religion Watch, December 1993. And this article in Religion Watch says, quote, Pentecostals are three times more likely than other Christians to experience major depression. According to a Vanderbilt University study, the overall group... 2,805 North Carolinians over a six-month period experienced serious depression at a rate of 1.7%, whereas the rate among Pentecostals was 5.4%. The researchers surmise that the higher rate may be partly because people who are already depressed are attracted to Pentecostalism's emphasis on spiritual and physical healing. So here I am. I'm going through a bad time. I'm starting to feel really bad about this bad time. And I hear that all I have to do is, one, two, three, believe something and I'm going to be healed. Or go to a faith healer where there's music and organ music and I'm falling over and I'm going to be healed. And so I go and I fall over and I get a bump on my head. <laughs> but I still have the ache and the pain and the disease. Now, am I saying God doesn't heal? No, I'm saying God does heal today. The Bible talks about the gift of healing. It doesn't talk about the gift of healers. But there is a legitimate gift of healing. I've experienced it. I've seen others experience it. It's wonderful. But if you're always expecting that you just say something or believe in something and poof, everything's going to be okay, you're going to be mighty alienated and isolated. And perhaps this contributed 
to David's whole experience. I'm the king. I've been anointed. What's next? Spears. A hitman being chased for 10 years through the wilderness. I'm sure he was sitting in the cave going, Lord, uh, next time that anointing guy comes by, could you just have him move to the next one? Another cause, perhaps. The taunts of unbelievers. The taunts of unbelievers. David was in Gath. They discover who he is. He starts drooling on his beard, acting like a nutcase. And they look at him and they go, he's nuts. Get him out of here. So he's already lied to Saul, already lied to the priest at Nob. Now he's deceiving this guy. And they're call the unbelievers are calling him nuts. That would further the sense of alienation. Now, you live in a world, you don't have to act insane. People already think you are. They do. If you are a believer and you're around unbelievers, the secular world doesn't understand if you love Jesus Christ with all your heart. They're not going to understand it. In fact, some of them are just going to think you're delusional. Oh, that's sweet. That's really, really nice for weak people. I've had people say that I'm nuts. Of course, maybe they're right, but the world is going to think that the Christian is insane. He said it to Paul. Your much learning has driven you insane, Paul. You'll get that from the world. You'll say, where is God? Why doesn't God intervene? The taunts of unbelievers. A third reason. A third reason for isolation. The overwhelming struggles of life. Or let's just put it, the accumulated struggles of life, shall we? I mean, think of what David has gone through, what he has left. Again, he left Gibeah, left the court, left his friend, left his wife, left his father-in-law, left his family, left everything, and now he's alone. Several psalms were written during this period. One of them is Psalm 56. Would you just turn over to Psalm 56 for a moment and notice David's language? Look at his prayer during this time of isolation in his life. Psalm 56 begins, To the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands. Great old song. A meek calm of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Verse 5, all day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. It's the feeling that the world is closing in around him. His friends, his enemies are all against him. You know, there's enough stuff in your life that you just add it all up, just the, the daily stress that happens to you as a Christian in life serving the Lord that can sometimes feel overwhelming. Paul the Apostle admitted to that. I know we like to think of Paul as this strong guy who just always smiled and always said, bless God. But listen to what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I have traveled many weary miles. 
I have faced danger from flooded rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the stormy seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be Christians but are not. I have lived with weariness and pain and sleepless nights. Often I have been hungry and thirsty. I have gone without food. Often I have shivered with cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. You know, you add all those experiences up and it's going to take its toll. It's going to take its toll. And maybe you're going through a, a, a season. You know, when it rains, it pours. One thing happens, then another, then somebody dies and somebody gets sick, and then something happens economically, and, and you're just thinking, oh, it's just adding up. It's tough. A couple of guys, Thomas Benema and Dennis Slevin, wrote a little thing a few years back called the Executive Stress Manual. And what they did is they measured stress of human beings in what they call life change units. Certain experiences of life will yield life change units. And they say, if you get too many of these, you'll have a breakdown. In fact, they say two to 300 points is volatile in a year. So this is how they measured it. The death of a spouse will produce 100 life change units. A divorce, 73 life change units. Marital separation from mate, 65. Detention in jail or institution, 63. Death of a close family member, 63. Personal injury or illness, 53. Marriage, 50. <laughs> Being fired, 47. Retirement from work, 45. Pregnancy, 40. Vacation, 13. <laughs> you know, you can have good and bad stress. Christmas, 12. I don't know, Christmas could even go a little higher in some cases with some people. You put all of those together in a short period of time, and just that accumulated, accumulated stress can take its toll. The normal pressure, Paul experienced that as well as David. And I think those are some of the causes that interplayed here with David. Now we get into chapter 22, and we're not going to read it all. I'm going to kind of sum it up for you, and we'll close tonight. But look at the first few verses. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And so when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. How would you like to have that for your church? <laughs> who goes to your church, David? Well, everybody who's in debt and distress and people who are discontented. And so he became the captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Oh, but what God is going to do with 400 people in debt, discontented people. God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. I actually love this verse. I think it's like, kind of like the guys I've hung out with growing up. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. And so he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with them all that time David was in the stronghold. Here's the skinny. David takes his parents down to the Dead Sea area, across the Dead Sea to the mountains of Moab. Now, does Moab ring a bell for some of you? 
That's where his great-grandma's from. Ruth was from Moab. She was a Moabitess. And when Elimelech and Naomi went across to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem, Ruth became a part of that family. She came back, married Boaz. Those are the great-grandparents of David. He'd heard the story. He's going to go check it out. But more than that, he wants his parents protected. After all, Saul, if he's after him, might kill mom and dad. So he takes his family to the king of Moab. Why? Probably because the king of Moab and the king of Israel, Saul, were enemies. And so he thought, look, I'm not a king yet. I've defected from Saul. This guy's safe. And he was honest this time. He asked for protection. Now, notice that it says in verse 4, And they dwelt with him all that time that David was in the stronghold. See that word stronghold? The Hebrew word is metsudah or masada. And it's thought that David crossed the Dead Sea and hung out in Masada, which is the place we take people to when we go to Israel where the Jews had their last stand after 70 AD, after the temple fell with Eleazar ben Yair. It's a fabulous story. There's a movie called it, and I don't recommend many movies. That's a movie I'll recommend, Masada. And uh, you'll get the historical background. David stayed there for a while in this little desert hideaway. Now, Saul, meanwhile, back at the camp, is getting more nuts as the days go by. Truly paranoid. Truly thinks everybody's out to get him. There's a conspiracy. Blames his men. There's a conspiracy against me. I know it. You guys, you Benjamites, have, have known all along about David and Jonathan's love for each other and friendship, and you didn't tell me. And so he blasts them for this. Notice down at verse 7. Now hear you, Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make all of you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me. And there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me. Oh, poor little baby king. <laughs> Listen to him. He's pouting before his soldiers. They should have just smacked him for this. I don't know. No one is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Let me tell you what happens. To soothe Saul in his outrage, Doeg, that Edomite herdsman who watched David go to the priests at Nob, Ahimelech, tells Saul, well, Saul, I saw the, king, uh, the king's enemy, David, Hightail it down to Nob. He was down south. I was there. I watched him and this priest Ahimelech confer, and he walked away with a sword. And so Saul goes, ah, that's where the conspiracy is. So he goes down to Nob, brings the soldiers, talks to Ahimelech. Ahimelech tells him the truth. Look, David was here, told me that he was on a mission from you, king. So he lied to me. Saul didn't buy it. And ordered the murder of the priests. Nobody would do it. Not one of his men would do it, except Doeg, Doeg the dog, the Edomite, who hated Jews historically anyway, who's descendant of Esau, always hated the sons of Jacob. So Doeg slaughters 85 priests, their wives, their children, their infants, and their livestock. 
What kind of hatred has filled King Saul? Here's a guy who spared the Amalekite king, Agag. Oh, I don't want to put him to the sword. I don't want to, I don't want to get that livestock. That's, that's the best stuff. But he's willing to slaughter innocent priests. He's a terrorist. He's a coward. And he's filled with hatred. In verse 20, we'll close off the chapter. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Keep his mind or his name in your head, in your mind. Abiathar will serve when David becomes the king of Israel. He's like the main priest guy with Zadok, the high priest. And Abiathar told David that Saul killed the Lord's priests. David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. Now listen to this admission. I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks yours, but with me you shall be safe. David realizes something. David realizes that he had been concerned about himself up to this point, and he's been wrong. And this leads us to the fourth and final cause that we see here of isolation and spiritual depression. Preoccupation with yourself. Preoccupation with yourself. He realizes, you know what? This is my fault. I lied. I caused this. And there are many reasons for alienation and isolation and depression and loneliness. One of the basic reasons is preoccupation with yourself or selfishness. Okay, sure, our lot is bad. Things really are rotten right now. This isn't a good situation I'm in. But isolation can come from self-preoccupation. Somebody handed me this a while back, and I've kept it and reminded myself of it. It's a recipe. Recipe for a miserable life. Here it is. Here's the ingredients. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be always appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk. If people are not grateful to you for favors shown them, never forget a service that you may have rendered. Be on the lookout for a good time for yourself. Shirk your duties if you can. Do as little as possible for others. Love yourself supremely. Be selfish. You add all of those things together, and if you do them, you will be miserable. If you focus on yourself, you will be miserable. If you're always analyzing yourself, listen. If I always look at myself, it's depressing. But if I look at myself in view of God's mercy towards me as God sees me, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's a way to look at yourself. I would suggest that you go home and meditate on Psalm 56, which we had you read just a little bit ago. Go home and read the rest of it tonight before you go to bed. And notice 
what David does. Essentially, he replaces his thoughts with God's thoughts. He replaces isolation with integration, bringing other people into his life, not staying isolated. And third, he replaces his past with his future. He thinks about, you know, God has gotten me up to this point, and God's going to take me further. I'm going to hope in him. I'm going to hope in him. Thank God for David. Thank God for the Psalms. A guy who was just honest with people. The answer to life is not go see Grimaldi. The answer is go see Christ. If I were to say, well, I'm really sorry that you're feeling so bad. Listen, the answer to your problem is there's a cool movie out. Just take your mind off of it. There's nothing wrong with going out and having a great time and airing out your feelings with a bit of laughter, etc. But if you haven't come to Christ yet, if you're focused on yourself, if you haven't given your heart and your life to Christ, in fact, let me put it to you plainly, if you haven't repented, if you haven't turned your life to Him, your future looks pretty bleak, to be frankly, to be honest with you. Oh, you'll have ups and downs, happy times. There'll be birthdays and Christmases and cards and gifts and laughter. But if you want purpose and you want meaning in life, don't go see Grimaldi. Go see Christ. And then see him regularly once you've seen him first. Keep going to him. Keep seeing him. Keep listening to him. Keep fellowshipping. Keep seeking. Even when times are difficult. Even when suffering comes. Seek him. Let him, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Your outlook is determined by your uplook. It's not determined by your inlook. I'm going to look inside and find out all the problems that are in my life. You know, there's a paralysis in self-analysis. You just go, it's hopeless. Because once you cure one thing, you'll find a whole lot more. The sin nature has such a depth to it, you'll never completely deal with every problem, every issue. The guilt complex is relieved at the foot of the cross. I have a hunch most of you have done that. You've come to the cross, but maybe you haven't. Maybe you've sought solace in a relationship, in a career, in a philosophy, in an education in a religion or a religious experience. But have you seriously, honestly, authentically asked Jesus Christ to be number one in your life? Have you repented of your sins and given your life by faith to him? You've got everything to gain. Heavenly Father, we close tonight. We're so grateful that David told the truth about his experiences. He wasn't afraid to voice them. He wasn't afraid to write them down and leave them for posterity and other people to read about the depth of depression and despair and heartache that he went through, how he wrestled with you and questioned you, and yet he came to that place of resolve, basically hope in God, trust in the rock that is higher. And it was always based upon what you have done for him in the past. Lord, there's a whole room full of people that have a track record, that have a history, that have a story to tell, 
of your faithfulness. There are some sitting next to them who want that. And so, Lord, if those who have gathered and are sensing alienation and isolation from you, Father, I pray that tonight they would turn to you, Lord. And Lord, you know we're not suggesting that everyone who is feeling down is not a Christian, because Christians even feel down from time to time. And sometimes in the depth of despair. But Father, you're holding out your hand tonight. Nail-pierced, hands of mercy and love, to welcome anyone into your kingdom who would trust in that, that sacrifice, that man, those wounds. And they would admit that they're sinners, and they would be willing to turn from their sin and turn to you. You're a God of forgiveness. Extend your hand again tonight. 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 Send your hand again.